and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We're again speaking tonight on some of the issues people have or supposed issues people may have uh, with our King James Bible. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again so much for your words. Thank you, Lord, that we can know what's truth. Lord, in this world, there's so many people claiming that they have something new, something, something old, something uh, unique. Lord, we just, again, are thankful that we don't have to constantly uh, jump on the next bandwagon going by. Thank you, Lord. You've given us something that we know is true. It always was true, always will be true. Help us, Lord, to realize what we have in our hands. Help us, Lord, to know the truth. Help us, Lord, to love the truth and help us to obey the truth. And help us, Lord, to not only know that we have your words, but help us to realize that they can direct our lives and make our life profitable and useful and, and fruitful. And, and Lord, uh, we could use your words in every part of our life. Please, uh, again, use us tonight, Lord, to uh, be better servants and use us tonight, Lord, to better be able to point people towards you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I am weak, but you are strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. This world of toil and snares. If I falter, Lord, who cares? Who with me my burden shares? None but thee, dear Lord, none but thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Jesus is my plea, daily walking close to thee, let it be, dear Lord, let it be. When my feeble life is o'er, for me will be no more. Guide me gently, safely o'er to thy kingdom shore, to thy shore. Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee, let it be, dear Lord, let it be, let it be, dear Lord, let it be. As I just said a few minutes ago, we're going to continue speaking about the subject here of uh, the supposed issues people have with the King James Bible. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again so much for giving us, uh, again, your words, Lord. Not only uh, do we have your words, Lord, but we have it written down, Lord, in front of us. And every one of us can research it and study it and look at it, learn it, read it. Thank you, Lord, again, that we live in this generation where we do uh, have uh, such technology like printing presses, and every one of us can even go down to a, a dollar store and get a Bible. Thank you, Lord, again for giving us so much of your words around us, and help us, Lord, to, because of this uh, great privilege that we have, help us, Lord, to live more like you. Help us to be closer to you as we should be, Lord. Help us not to uh, take for granted this 
uh, great uh, uh, blessing, Lord, that we have. Please give us wisdom tonight again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We spoke in the Bible about the these and thous. We also spoke uh, in the Bible how the, you, the Bible uses the E-S-T and E-T-H endings. We spoke about italicized uh, words in the Bible. We then spoke about how in the 1611, uh, there was, of course, some uh, uh, Gothic print. There was an old uh, type uh, style print that they used, and the alphabet was a little bit different that they used, and of course they've converted that. Then of course some of the spelling differences, they standardized the spelling and the punctuation and so forth. I had an interesting <coughs> thought here. We're, we're complaining uh, because, you know, the 1611 was written 400 years ago. But uh, if you realize, in the New Testament, when the apostles were preaching, they were preaching something that was written 1,500 years ago. I mean, uh, you know, and they had no problem with it. We're a bunch of babies is what it is. We just don't want to study. Uh, and I'm sure the language changed, in, you know, and really, not only that, but keep in mind the Old Testament was in he, uh, Hebrew, and they were speaking in Greek. So they were speaking a different language as well. But uh, again, they had to accept the changes and understand those changes and go along with it. Uh, again, we can't constantly change the, the Bible to suit people's, uh, again, uh, just... Uh, uh, wanting everything to be easy and everything to be put on a plate for them. So, again, we spoke about the fact that there's words that, uh, in our, from our perspective, we call them archaic words, but actually they're very good words. They're very strong words. And so, again, they were right to leave those words there. We just need to understand them and start using them. Bible language should be different if you think about it. For the, for the Bible to be written in street language would be inappropriate, I think. I think the Bible should be written on a higher level than what we use on the telephone or in texting. So again, I don't have any problem at all, and neither should you, with words that you may not understand. Again, simply look them up and understand them. And as we mentioned, many times the Bible explains them for you. If you just keep reading the Bible, you'll see how that word is used. And you can learn a lot about spelling from just your Bible. Amen? Use, learn a lot about grammar from the Bible. And then last week we spoke about uh, books uh, that are mentioned in the Bible that are not part of the inspired Word of God. Uh, these are from the secular words, world. Some of them were poets. Uh, some of them were just books that were written by secular people at the time. And so the Bible oftentimes... Um, mentions these books. Obviously, the things that happened in the Bible uh, were observed and seen by, in many cases, many, many unbelievers and sometimes the whole world. And so again, uh, sometimes, you know, things like the flood or the sun standing still, uh, historians would have written about that, and kings would have kept records of that. And uh, people in the secular world would have had, just like you could look up things today, uh, what was written in newspapers, you know, 50 years ago, things like that would have been uh, recorded. And so educated people would write these things down, and when the Bible mentions those things, the Bible's not saying that they were inspired at all, it's just simply using them like a reference, like you would in a sermon, for example, or if I got up and I mentioned something as Brother Ube did about Puerto Rico or Mexico or something like that, they're simply mentioning secular things because it, again, uh, is part of a sermon or it's part of something that uh, is going on at that time. Uh, and the truth is, many times uh, when God mentions something, uh, uh, it is, again, uh, purposeful. But does God have to preserve man's words? No, he doesn't. So these books are lost. These books are no longer around. And so God never promised us that these, uh, the book of Jasher or the book of Ido or, or Abijah would be around. God didn't promise that because that, these were the prophets' writings. Maybe their personal diaries or their personal records or whatever uh, they wrote. But again, at the time of writing, they, the people could have checked those books if they wanted to. But we need to be careful with that because... Um, illustrate. Years ago, when I was a new pastor, I remember somebody coming up to me and being very upset with Christianity. And they had listened to one of these TV evangelists, and they had sent them several hundred dollars for some kind of a blanket or something. I don't know what it was. And they were kind of coming to me saying, you know, what's with Christianity? I spent all these hundreds of dollars to buy this stupid thing, whatever it was, and they were looking at me like I was supposed to fix it, but the truth is my heart, I had a very hard time having compassion on them. Now, I, 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 I didn't say this, but here's what I thought. If you're so dumb to spend your money on that, it's your fault. I mean, why are you wasting your money like that? I mean, you, you know, don't, don't come crying to me if you go out there and somebody sells you the Brooklyn Bridge and you believe them. I mean, if you're that, you know, ignorant, I'm sorry, but maybe this is teaching you a lesson. 
And so if you're out there looking for the lost books of the Bible, I mean, I'm sorry. If you bought, you know, it's funny. I had several people this week tell me, oh, yeah, I got that one. I'm like, okay, I hope you didn't spend a lot of money on that. And I hope you didn't think that it was real because all that's garbage. It's just somebody making money. And so you better be careful with that. There's no lost books of the Bible. God doesn't lose anything. You know, God doesn't, oh, I lost, where's my words? Where did I put them? God, God doesn't do that. These were secular writers. These were historical books. Uh, I mean, talking about people of history. Uh, again, so what? You know, we, uh, a lot of people write books, and a lot of them are lost. That's all that was. And the Bible mentions them just like uh, today a preacher would mention some kind of Webster's Dictionary or something like that. It's the same kind of thing. It is different than thus saith the Lord or it is written when God speaks his words uh, and those people are inspired and scripture is inspired. So the only thing that's inspired is what we have right here. The Apocrypha is not inspired and all those books, if they're around whatever, I highly doubt that. Either way, they're not inspired. Otherwise, they'd be in this book right here between these two covers. So again, uh, keep that in mind. Another question people may have in, in the Bible is why they didn't update the currency and weights in the Bible. In the Bible, there's a lot of currencies and weights. Why didn't they put it in real money terms that we can relate to or modern weights that we can uh, relate to? Why didn't they put it in dollars and cents or pounds and ounces and so forth? Uh, if they had done that 400 years ago, it would have been a very, very bad idea. It would have been a, a, just a mess, if you will. The right thing that they, the, what they did was the right thing to do. They just left it according to what was used during those times. Uh, look in your Bible to First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. Money, uh, there was a lot of different kinds of money in the Bible. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 7. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 7. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 7. In the Old Testament, uh, people used talents and also uh, a form of money called drams, D-R-A-M. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 7. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 7. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 7. The Bible says, And he gave for the service of the house of God of gold 5,000 what? And 10,000 what? And of silver, 10,000 talents, and of brass, 18,000 talents, and 100,000 talents of iron. So there was this, this money uh, increment called a talent or a dram. Also in Isaiah 7, look in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 23. 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 Isaiah chapter 7, verse 23. You all got it? And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were 10,000, where uh, there were a thousand vines at a thousand what? Silverlings, it shall even be for briars and thorns. So in the Old Testament, they had talents, drams, and silverlings. (laughs) It's a hard word for me to say. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 26, Matthew chapter 26, and again, they didn't try to convert it or anything in the New Testament. Uh, They just used what they used during those times. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 26. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 26. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 26. The Bible says there, Verily I said unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost, what? Farthing. So this was a a money increment in the New Testament, a farthing, or if you will. uh, Look in uh, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verse 2. Matthew chapter 20, verse number 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 (laughs) 2. You all got it? And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So obviously there was a uh, form of money called a farthing, which is probably something small, then a penny as well. And we think of a penny as nothing. We just throw them away almost. But back then, a penny was a day's wage, and so it was a form of money. Uh, look, if you would, uh, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verse number 59, Luke chapter 12, verse number 59, Luke chapter 12, verse number 59. Luke chapter 12, verse number 59. <clears throat> Jesus, again, is speaking here. And during this period of time, they had the farthing, the penny. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 59, Jesus said, I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last might. So God, these were probably gold or silver pieces or some kind of precious metal. They had a certain weight to them. Uh, they were inscribed or they were printed. Uh, so in the Old and New Testament, you had different types of, uh, of money here. To translate currency or money values uh, and try to make it 
uh, up to date, or if they had tried to make it up to date in 1611, would have been extremely unwise, extremely confusing, because money changes value constantly. Can you imagine trying to convert money, uh, like for example, in 1611 to, to now? I, I, look, when I was a kid, we'd go to the mall with our parents. When me and my sister were small, and buddy, if we had 10 cents or 25 cents, we were good to go. I know you're all laughing at me, 10 cents, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, well, for two cents, you can get bubble gum. For five cents, you, get a, you can get a big yum. Grape, cherry, good stuff. Good stuff, lasts for two or three hours. You can blow bubbles for the whole night. Listen, if you had 10 cents, you, we used to get this stuff, it was like a little tube of stuff and a little toothpaste thing with a little straw in it, and you could make a ball. You take this gooey junk, and it's, you know, it really smelled like you could high, get high from it. So uh, it was really powerful stuff, but you'd squeeze out this junk, put it on the end of a straw, and then you'd blow on it, and if you get it right, you can actually make a ball. And it would dry out and stuff, and you could you know, play with that all night. Buddy, if you had 25 cents, man, you're in business. I mean, you can get some kind of little toy or some kind of... You, you could get something for 25 cents. Now, can you imagine if in 1611 they converted all this into money? 1611, do you know what a mess it would be now? I mean, it would be totally irrelevant. It would be totally useless. The best thing they did is exactly what they did. They just left it what it was. And each culture can try to figure it out and try to explain or try to uh, calculate it uh, in some fashion. Uh, again, also, the dollar value changes and is useless around the world. I used to have a relative who used to make quite a bit of money by international exchanging uh, exchanging money on an international level because money is constantly adjusting and so forth to try to set a value to it is silly uh, because it's going to change anyway and if you take the same amount it may be right or appropriate for America but if then you print it in China or a missionary goes to the Philippines again it's completely out of sync so to translate that money into something modern would be illogical it'd be foolish uh, and of course in all over the world you have different money uh, increments and so forth and so each generation needs to figure out how something is worth I remember when I was a kid uh, when we used to be in Sunday school the teacher used to say Solomon's temple cost so many millions of dollars and we'd be like oh wow millions of dollars well you figure out today millions of dollars is even that much today I mean today in, in gold and so there's billions of dollars billions and billions of dollars maybe even trillions I don't know but uh, again you, you can constantly figure it out so if they had put it back there 400 years ago in what the uh, what England was using it would have just been a mess anyway the best thing is leave it what they did in the Old Testament and leave it what they use in the New Testament and we could figure it out the best we can uh, today for, for ourselves again we need to stop being so lazy and do some work we want everything spoon-fed to us like we're three-year-olds you know like okay here's what it's worth you know somebody else do the work press a button get the the answer google it no no let the bible be the bible amen weights is the same thing look in uh, exodus chapter 38 exodus chapter thir uh, 28 exodus chapter 28 <clears throat> weights are the same thing and sometimes weights were tied to the value of money so that was another thing that was make may maybe a little bit tricky in the in the in the bible sometimes weights were tied to the value of silver or the value of gold Exodus chapter 28, Exodus chapter 28, verse number, I'm sorry, Exodus 38, Exodus 38, Exodus chapter 38, verse number 26, Exodus chapter 38, verse number 26, Exodus chapter 38, verse 26, you all got it? The Bible says there, a becca for every man, that is half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary, for every one that went to be numbered from 20 years old and upward, for six for 600,000 and 3,550 men. So here in the Bible, there was a, 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 a weight called a becca. A becca was equal to a half a shekel of silver. So again, pretty valuable. Uh, uh, so a becca is very valuable in the Bible. Now, I don't know which one it is, if it's Nogera or, or Kim or if it's Rodriguez, but the Bible says a Becca is very valuable. So you don't need to start treating the, these Beccas amongst us with respect, amen? So in the Bible, some people are worth a lot, but in the Bible, the Bible also says, we do believe the, the Bible's God's word. Yes or no? Okay, well, let me show you another verse then, Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verse number 13. There are others that are worth very little. Exodus chapter 30, verse number 13. Exodus chapter 30, verse 13. A becca is very valuable. It's half a shekel of silver. 
In Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, we have another weight that's almost worthless. Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, this they shall give everyone that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 what? Geras. Oh my goodness. A gera is worth one twentieth of a, of a shekel. Almost nothing. And this is not, if you, if you look at the German Bible, this is not the female Gera, this is the male Gera, by the way. It's in the male gender, so I just want to make sure I don't get myself in trouble. But uh, again, a Gera is worth a twentieth of a shekel, so almost nothing. So again, that's one of the smallest weights you got there. Completely, completely worthless, just dead weight. Uh, gets, hangs onto the coattails of all the other uh, people. But anyway, so anyway, in the Bible you have these different weights here. And, and shekels even were different sometimes because you had a shekel of the king's weight and you had a shekel of the sanctuary. So you had these different weights in the Bible. Now, again, uh, this is constantly an unstable thing. Why didn't they change these weights into something at the time? The best thing they did is just leave it. The best thing they just leave it because, again, it's a constantly changing thing. Just like when we were a kid, everybody's talking about, oh, you know what, we're teaching you these inches and yards and, uh, you know, pounds, and it's all going to be worthless in 2000. Well, I'm still weighing myself in pounds. I don't know. We're supposed to be metric now, aren't we? I don't know what we are. But, uh, uh, you know, we're, it, what I'm saying is that weights change constantly in countries, and weights all over the world are different. And so, again, the best thing the Bible did is just leave those terms they used in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Also in the Bible, there were ways to measure. We're not going to take the time to look at them because there's so many of them. But in 1 Kings chapter uh, 7, verse 26, uh, one of the ways of measuring is a bath. In Luke 11.33, uh, there's a way to measure, and that's a bushel. In 2 Kings 6.25, there's a cab, C-A-B. In Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 14, there's a core, C-O-R. In Exodus 16.36, there's an ephah. In John 2.6, there's a firkin. In Exodus 16.16, there's an omer. In Leviticus 26.16, there's a homer, H-O-M-E-R, or half homer. In Hosea 3.2. Uh, in Leviticus 14.10, uh, there is a law. L-O-G. A tenth deal is in Exodus 29.40. So there's a lot of different ways to measure. And so why didn't they change these, these um, new, uh, monetary numbers or these weights or these ways of measuring uh, into, into modern things? Well, the best thing is leave it as it is because every country has their ways to measure. Uh, every country has their ways to, uh, uh, if you will, uh, uh, count money and so forth. And all of them change all the time, so the best thing is just to leave it. They translated it as it was, and that was the best thing that they could do. And again, so in the Bible, sometimes you'll read these funny amounts and you'll say, well, I wonder what that is. Well, the best thing to do is try to figure it out because each, even within a few years, things change all the time. So in the King James Bible, you have all these, these ways of measuring and, and monetary numbers and so forth that the best thing they did was just leave it as it is. Okay, another issue that people will have uh, uh, sometimes when you get to talking is about who is King James. Okay, we call this the King James Bible. Now, let me try to be clear here. When people start to question who king, because some people have an uh, issue. They say, well, he was a godly king. Some people he sa say that he was very ungodly. As a matter of fact, the latest thing that people are saying is that he's a homosexual. And so, again, a lot of people's question, well, was King James a good guy or a bad guy? Was he a hypocrite? Was he real? Whatever, blah, blah, blah. Personally, from my opinion, it is a non-issue with me. It is a non-issue with me. Number one, God said he would take responsibility for preserving his words. Okay, I have God's words on it. Uh, so to me, it wasn't and never was the responsibility of any king or government or country or any man in particular that I have to say, oh, you know, he's, he's something special. He's going to preserve God's word for me. No, I've never believed that, never will. It is a work of God. God is going to make sure that every generation has his word. As we looked up in Psalms 12, 5, and 6 in the beginning of this Bible study, uh, mankind is imperfect, it is illogical for us to trust an imperfect man to give us a perfect book. Now, God works through men. God inspires, if you will, those holy men, as it said in 2 Kings, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, but remember, the Scripture is inspired. So King James, the King James uh, Bible, as we call it, remember that the word King James is not in the Bible. You're not going to read your Bible and find King James in here. So King James is not a part of what God spoke by the Holy Spirit, again, to Moses or Paul or Peter. Uh, King James is not something that, if you will, is an inspired part of the Bible. It's simply what we call it because it was authorized by him in England in 1611, as we'll talk about here in a few minutes. But it is a man-made name for our Bible. It's really God's words. 
We call it the King James Bible, so we know what we're talking about. We're not talking about the RSV or the ASV or the New King James Bible. We're talking about the King James Bible. But remember that the name King James is not something that God, if you will, gave us. Remember what I said in the beginning. The leather's not inspired. The paper's not inspired. The ink is inspired. And neither was King James as an individual. God's words are inspired. God inspired those holy men as, the, as they spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and then God preserved his words. And so the Bible says, as God preserved his words, the, inspir- the inspiration main- was maintained. It was inspirited. The Holy Spirit keeps the words alive. God's word is alive. It's not dead. That's why I believe the inspiration stays with it, because it's a living book. And uh, so again, the Bible's not dead, and it never was. It never was dead. Never will be dead, because as we said, God's word always was, and it always will be, because it is God. And so again, we have to understand. We call it the King James Bible simply because He authorized the uh, translation into English, uh, but we trust in God to keep His words. So the preservation of God's words. Uh, we're not a product of England. It was not a product of uh, Israel either in the Old Testament. It was a product of God himself. But I want to speak to you for a few minutes tonight here about this matter of King James, just so you have a little bit of a history on him. There have been a lot of books written about him that are very good that actually tell us about his life. And so when somebody comes up and starts smearing King James, uh, you have to realize that that is something that was done by the devil. I believe it was something done by people trying to claim him as one of their people, if you will. But a brief background. He was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, in June, uh, of June 9th, uh, on June 19th in 1566. His mother was Mary, the Queen of Scotland. His father was Lord Darnley, the, uh, the, the Lord of Scotland. His father was assassinated, uh, and then what happened is he became the King of Scotland. Um, when he was eight years old, he was very well tutored. He was tutored by evangelical Protestants and Puritans. By the age of eight, as a king's son, he was fluent in English, Greek, French, and Latin. And uh, he was a very, very scholarly kind of young man, but he was kind of ugly looking. He was very skinny. Uh, the Bible says he had kind of a squished face, like a long face, and he was very weak. He was, he was, he was not a very uh, buff kind of guy. He wasn't like, you know, tall, tall, dark, and handsome. And the truth is, even as a kid, a lot of the other king's kids would make fun of him because he was kind of weak and, and kind of, you know, again, just homely looking. In 1589, when he was 23 years old, he married a woman named Anne. She was the daughter of Frederick II, King of Denmark. Together they had eight children, so King James had eight children. He was the King of Scotland, as I mentioned. During that time, in 1603, the Queen of England, I'm sorry, Queen Elizabeth of England died, and he was somehow related uh, to her through his mother. So in 1603, he was also crowned King of England. So he was king of Scotland at the same time he was crowned king of England. So he had two thrones. Now, one of the things about King James, which I believe is why some people hated him, he, 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 was, he was very um, uh, fluent in the Bible, and he believed in what he called the divine right of kings. He was a very authoritative ruler. He felt like when he read about kings in the Bible uh, that they were very, very di- dictatorial. Now, he was very a very kind man, and England uh, experienced a lot of prosperity under his room, uh, under, under his rule, and as you'll see in a few minutes, he actually was very, very gracious, and he was, very, he was a good, very good king, but he was a very strong-handed leader, and basically what he said he felt should go from what he read in the Bible. So he believed in what he called the divine right of the kings to rule, and so what he decided to do, he decided to take England and combine it with Scotland, and actually Wales and Ireland as well, and he created what was known as the United Kingdom. And so King James took these four countries and said, you all are going to make one kingdom, and I'm going to rule all four countries. And so he called that Great Britain, or the United Kingdom, which, as I said, was made of England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. Um, He was very popular amongst the ordinary of people, but like I said, a lot of people hated him. Um, At this time, uh, Queen Elizabeth... Under, in, in England had started already uh, reaching out to the New World. Keep in mind, the world was being discovered at this time, and they were colonizing the New World, and he continued this as part of the United Kingdom. Jamestown, which was the first settlement, was named after him, after King James. And so, uh, again, he continued uh, pushing people to go out and explore and see what else could, could be done. He was a, vib- a Bible-believing person. Uh, he was tutored uh, by a man named George Buchanan. He was a Puritan preacher, when he was coronated king, the sermon was given by John Knox, which was a great reformer. So he hobnobbed and was friends with and, if you will, invited very, very powerful and influential Christian people during that time to be part of, of his rule. 
1599, we're going to refer to this a little bit more in a few minutes. In 1599, he wrote a book to his son, who was eventually, he felt, going to become a king as well, called the book, the book, the Basilican Doran, which meant kingly gift. And so he, he um, wrote this book with that Latin name to his son. Inside that book, King James wrote to his son, he said, Praying God that as you are regenerated and born in him anew, so you may rise to him and be sanctified in him forever. In his writings, he often referred referred to salvation as a free gift, salvation by faith, and he referred to regeneration. He referred to one day receiving a white garment washed in the blood of the Lamb. So again, these are terms that a born-again Christian would use. So I believe King James, from what his writings speak about him, uh, was a saved man. I believe he was a Bible-believing man, a God-fearing man. And so again, like I said, he accepted a lot of born-again believers during this time, Um, and so, again, was very, very aware of what was going on. He was very uh, spiritual, and also he wrote a lot of books, which was a good way, which is a good way to see what a man was like. Keep in mind, we don't have any pictures of him, or we may have some paintings, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to document somebody's life 400 years ago, but we do have some of his writings. Uh, and he wrote quite a bit, actually. King James himself, in his private devotions, actually translated the book of Psalms from Hebrew into English. Uh, So he did this on his own. Now, that was not used for the King James Bible, but it's kind of interesting that this man is a king, uh, knowing Hebrew and knowing English, had already translated Psalms. It was already something he was dabbling with. He already wanted to have uh, the the Bible in in, in English, and and he actually had uh, quite a bit of the Bible as well. Uh, He started translating. He wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. He wrote a devotional book called The Meditations, My Meditations on the Lord's Prayer, So obviously he was very interested in prayer, he was interested in prophetic events, and interested in the Psalms. Um, He wrote a book on demonology. Uh, (laughs) This is one thing he did where everybody, uh, well, the witches hated him. He actually got up and and in this book documented that he believed that all witches were demon-possessed. And so uh, he, and keep in mind, this is 1611 or early 1600s, late 1500s, England, so there's a lot of witchcraft going on, and he took a stand as a king and basically called them all demon-possessed, and so a lot of witches hated him and wanted him to be destroyed. Uh, During his reign, also, uh, he wrote a book called Counterblast to Tobacco. I think I referenced this just recently uh, because in this time, a lot of countries were bringing tobacco uh, back from the New World, and basically tobacco was being introduced to Europe at this time. Keep in mind, it was something grown in America here and brought to Europe by all the different uh, people traveling back and forth. And so he condemned tobacco, which shows you he had some discernment, and he said whether you smoke it or chew it, it's disgusting. Uh, He said a smoker and a non-smoker cannot be equally free in the same room. So again, he he really took a stand against tobacco uh, with this, this pamphlet. He also ended torture as part of England's legal system. Keep in mind, back then, uh, people would be uh, just tortured in wicked ways. They would take a person and put him in wooden barrels, and they'd put a little hole in the top, and they'd feed him through that hole. And unless they recanted and uh, you know, basically became part of the Catholic uh, religion, they would literally live in that thing for months and months until they died. Most of them would go insane. They had horrible tortures they would do to people. I'm sure you've heard of things like that. Uh, King James ended all that. In, in, in the United Kingdom. He, he again, said, we're not going to uh, do that anymore. They stopped burning people at the stake and all these kinds of horrible things that they did to dissenters, people that didn't go along with the state religion. Before he was king, of course, a lot of people were persecuted. Of course, a lot of Baptists were killed. Probably millions of them were killed. And so, again, he ended all of that. He said this. He says, I will never allow in my conscience that the blood of any man be shed for diversity of opinion in religion. So again, to me, that, that's, that's the speakings of a saved man. He had very strong beliefs, but he didn't believe in using the government to, to force people to become part of his, his belief system. So again, he ended all this uh, torture and, and, and execution for religious subjects. He was actually the first king to start encouraging people to have a Bible in their own language. And uh, keep in mind, at this, at, before this time, the Catholic system had control of any quote-unquote Bibles they had, and they didn't allow people to have a Bible. If you had a Bible, I mean, your eyes would be uh, plucked out if you read the Bible. They'd do all kinds of horrible things if they found out you read the Bible or heard the Bible or tried to speak about the Bible. And so he was the first king that actually wanted his uh, people to have a copy of the Bible. In 1604, 1604, 
a Puritan preacher named John Reynolds approached him with the idea of England producing its own production or its own translation of the Bible in English. Like I just said, that was a, that was a, this, was, this was putting him in a very unique spot or a very difficult spot, if you will, because before Rome controlled all this. For him, with the United Kingdom, to say we're going to have an English translation was basically breaking with the Catholicism of Rome. And so again, uh, this, would, this would make him choose sides. If he said no, obviously he would have kind of condescended and gone along with what was going on with the Roman system. If he said yes, obviously right away uh, Catholicism would know that he stood against them. And of course he said yes, and he, uh, he was for that. <clears throat> so he agreed to sponsor it. And um, keep in mind that, and, I'll, and, I'll, and this is to me very interesting, about 80 years before, a man named William Tyndale had started translating the Bible into English. In 1536, he was called a heretic and burned alive at the stake by the Catholic hierarchy. His last words, this is, this is powerful, when, when William Tyndale died, he prayed as he died, he said, Lord, open the, the eyes of the King of England. And that's exactly what happened 80 years later. Now, King James was the king, and he said, I'm going to sponsor it. As a matter of fact, he himself, from his personal finances, paid the salaries of several of the translators, and he encouraged other people to financially give to this work. As you'll see, these men focused on only translating the Bible uh, for, I think, it's seven years. And so, again, it was a long process, and so he personally got behind it. But um, very interesting uh, how, how things changed because of King James. The kings before him had all martyred these believers that tried to translate the Bible. Another interesting thing is this. If you compare the William Tyndale uh, English translation to the one that King James uh, sponsored, it's over 90% the same. It's very, it's very interesting because keep in mind there were several people that by themselves tried to translate. This would be like a missionary out in the jungle trying to translate it. So the William Tyndale's uh, tr uh, translation was by one man. And, and now, as you'll see, it was a much more uh, well-thought-out and organized thing, but it's still over 90% exactly the same thing. So William Tyndale did his own efforts. There were many people, actually, that tried to translate the Bible into English. This was not the first time where the Bible was going to be translated into English. It was just the first time that whoever did it lived. <laughs> And that's, that's basically the, the situation. For the very first time, the person wasn't going to be like doing it somewhere in a, in a basement, you know, in the middle of the night uh, with a candle uh, and then be martyred before he could really even uh, be done with it. So again, um, King James, um, uh, like I said, encouraged people to, to, to get behind this financially. They called it the authorized version or the King James Bible <laughs> for the simple thing is this. People back then had to know that the king was okay with it. Basically, that's why we have the name King James Bible. People back then, like I said, if they found out you had a Bible, I mean, they would torture you, they would do all kinds of horrible things to you and basically kill you. The fact that it was an authorized or had the king's permission kept the translators safe and, of course, the people that owned it safe as well. So they organized uh, 54 people to translate uh, the Bible into English from the Hebrew and the Greek. And these were scholars. Uh, they, King James also had an open invitation if anybody wanted to be a part of this, which again showed his humility. Uh, he, he opened it up and said, listen, anybody wants to uh, give advice or so forth as well, he did that. We're not going to talk about all 54 of them, but uh, just a quick uh, quick uh, idea who these men were. There was a guy named William Bedwell. He had already translated parts of the Bible into Hebrew, Syriac, Chaldee, Arabic, and he had already written his own Persian dictionary. These were scholars. These were people that were beyond, I mean, smart. Uh, a, a man named John Boyce. He had, been, he had been reading Hebrew since age five, and then I believe by age six he was writing Hebrew. He <laughs> this is crazy. He studied every day from four in the morning to eight o'clock at night. It's just insane. This guy was a scholar. That's all he did. Four in the morning to, to eight o'clock at night. What is that? Uh, 16, hours, 16 hours a day uh, studying. In college, uh, when he went to college as a young man, he taught a class to his fellow students at four in the morning on Greek. 
and he had a lot of students actually come to his class at four in the morning. That's how, how, how good he was. They said he was so familiar with the Greek New Testament, if you said a word, he could go through the Greek New Testament and just show you every time that word was mentioned. That's how familiar it was he was with the Greek Testament. Uh, he had written commentaries on the Gospels on the Book of Acts. So again, very, very intelligent man, lo- man that loved God. Uh, Thomas Hollard was another man. He had a Bachelor of Arts, Master of Arts, Bachelor of Divinity, Doctor of Divinity, and a Master of Divinity degree. He was very, very against Catholicism. A lot of these guys were on board because they were so resentful towards what the Catholic Church had been doing by not allowing people to have the Bible. This guy really hated Catholicism, and he saw it as the devil's work, which it is. But uh, again, he was very against Catholicism. When he traveled, he said to his wife and children, he says, I commend you to the love of God and the abhorrence of popery. <laughs> so that was his big thing. He didn't believe at all in, 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 in the Pope. He spent most of his time, they say, in prayer and study. Another man named Lancelot Andrews spoke 15 languages, including Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Chaldee, Syrian, and Arabic. Uh, they, call, they said that he could have been the interpreter general at the Tower of Babel if he had been alive at that time. He could translate all these languages. This, this, to me, is really convicting to me. This man spent five hours a day in prayer every day. Five hours every day. These guys were not just smart. They were godly. And they're very humble. If you get to know them, some of the things they wrote, I didn't write all that stuff down, but some of the things they wrote about themselves and about their work, very, very humble men. Uh, He was chaplain to Queen Elizabeth. He was dean of Westminster Abbey, and they called him the Star of Preachers. Another guy named Miles Smith was the Bishop of Gloucester. (coughs) This is a big compliment. They called him the third university in England. In England, there were two big uh, universities, Oxford and Cambridge. They said he himself is the third university of England. That's how, how smart he was. But other people said he was the utmost in meekness and benevolence. He was an expert in Greek, Latin, Chaldean, Syriac, and Syrian, and Arabic. Another guy, John Reynolds, this is the guy that approached King uh, James, was a preacher. He was a leader of the Puritan movement. He was one of the champions of the Reformations, and they called him the Living Library. Uh, Francis Dillingham. Uh, he was the parson of Bedfordshire. Uh, he had written a book called The Manual of the Christian Faith, uh, denouncing and refuting the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Then Dr. Richard um, Brett, uh, he was the rector uh, in the church in Buckinghamshire. He was skilled in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Chaldean, and Ethiopian. He was a vigilant pastor, dil- diligent preacher, faithful friend, and good neighbor, as other people said about him. Another guy named David, I'm sorry, Dr. William Brainswaith. Uh, spent most of his life living in Cambridge University, basically just constantly uh, involved in these kinds of uh, things. They said he was the most learned, reverent, and worshipful person they has ever met. So he was one of these guys that just stayed in the college and pretty much studied and, and prayed and fasted and so forth his whole life. Of the 54 men, four were college presidents, six were bishops, five were university deans, 30 had PhDs, and 41 were university professors. All 54 of them believed in the deity of Christ, salvation, inspiration of Scripture, and they were men of prayer. In 1604, uh, they set aside three years to prepare themselves to translate the Bible into English. So three years they fasted and prayed, asking for God to guide them in this, and they started translating the Bible into English in 1607. What they did in 1607 is they divided these men into six companies, about eight or nine in each company. So they created six companies, and they divided up into three locations in England. One group, two companies, met in Cambridge University. Two companies met in Oxford University. And then two companies met in, West, met in Westminster Abbey. So you had two companies in three different places, six companies total. And so what they did is they took the Bible, the entire Bible, and they divided it up into six sections. So they basically divided it into six portions. Then they gave each portion to each company. Then within each company, they separated, and each man, each of the eight or nine men in each company, individually translated the entire portion, which was basically one-sixth of the Bible. Individually, they translated that portion. Then each man brought the finished translation to the company he was with, and then the entire company looked at his translation and basically either made correction or suggestions or 
or, or it changes. So each man made their own, uh, their own translation. Then the company as a group of eight or nine would look at this man's translation and study it, change it as they thought fit. Then this man's, then this man's, this man's. When the company had 100% unanimous approval, that company was done with that one-sixth of the Bible. So you have six companies, each translating one-sixth of the, of the Bible, each man translating it, then going up before the company and them all looking at it. Then the entire company goes through this whole thing and has unanimous agreement on one section. Then each company switches work with another company. And the whole process starts all over again. And so then each company reviews the other company's work. And so basically... They did this six times. Each section would be done by one company, then looked at by another company, then another company, then another company, and it would go all the way around. They would keep on switching it to other companies, and every company had to give 100% unanimous agreement on uh, that portion of Scripture that was translated. This took three years. So for three years, they, they personally translated it, the company approved it, then they switched it to other companies, and they gave 100% unanimous approval. Then in 1610, for one year, this would have been the seventh review, which is kind of interesting. Seven is God's number. In 1610 to 1611, they took one year for all the men of all the companies to review the entire Bible together for one year. So for one year, and you notice how they didn't rush through this. They weren't in a rush to get it out there to make money on the printing press. They weren't, didn't, didn't care about that. They basically took their time and did things right, and they had... Many, many scholars of the day working together on this. Again, I don't trust them. I have faith in God. But again, it's just interesting how different it was. That's one of the things about the Bible. This wasn't written by one, one man. This book was written by, by many, many, many different people. I think at least 30 different authors. And, and so again, many different people. And that's, that's God's seal of approval. It's not just one person's work like Muhammad or Buddha or somebody like that or, or, or Joseph Smith or, or Charles Russell. This was written by many different people. You know what? People were used, but God is the author behind it. And so very, very different. But they did this in a very, uh, a very uh, forthright fashion. So each company then got to, I'm sorry, all the companies got together, all together, and then the entire group of them, all of them, had to have a 100% unanimous vote that they were uh, convinced that they had translated properly. When they were finished it, when they finished it, they said, that they had produced an exact translation of the Holy Scriptures into the English tongue. And they were confident in that, and they wrote that when they, when they um, were done. In 1611, immediately, these guys weren't interested in money, immediately they started copying these things. Thousands and thousands uh, of copies were printed in order to be given to the churches of England. Now, these were large Bibles. They wanted big Bibles so that they could read it in the congregation. So the, the, the government, the king, didn't try to make money on this. They printed, I believe, 20,000 Bibles and gave them to the churches so that each church could have uh, a, church, uh, a Bible in their church. And like I said, these were very ornate, very large. They called them pulpit Bibles, probably real big. In 1612, they started producing smaller versions, and then these were for personal uh, study and for people to, to have in their in their homes. And so King James was a very godly man. Uh, it, it, there's books written about his life. You could t we could talk, I have written down here some of the things that uh, his, his wife said and his family said, people that knew him said. Uh, let me just put it this way. He was not a homosexual. Uh, you know, the homosexual crowd today wants to grab him and make him one of their own. That's true. Catholics wanted to, to smear him. If I had time, I would tell you there was a man, the, 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 the homosexual, um, the um, uh, gossip comes from a, a particular guy. Um, let me look up his name real quick. Um, where is his name? He wrote a lot of stuff, though. And you, when you read his writings, I mean, it's good. It's really good stuff. And um, The, uh, the uh, source of the accusation of homosexuality was a guy named Anthony Weldon. Anthony Weldon was knighted by King James, and he served in his court. 
But then he did something where the uh, King James fired him, so basically shamed him. And this guy, uh, Anthony Weldon, vowed revenge, uh, but he, you know, like I said, King James was very, very well respected, and a lot of people knew him, and he has a lot of writings. Uh, in, in 1642, this is after King James had been dead about 20 years, what happened is England went through a, a civil war, and at this point, King James's son was ruling, his name was King Charles, and uh, he also was like his dad, where he believed in the divine right of kings, so he was a very strong ruler, uh, and people rose up against him and killed him in the English Civil War. During that time, people kind of got turned against the king, and Anthony Weldon was still alive. King James, keep in mind, was dead over 20 years. That is when he started publishing stuff that he was a homosexual. And basically, he was doing it in order to, to smear his name. He was trying to get back at him. In, in England, when somebody said they were homosexual, oh, that, that was like a very abhorrent thing. People really, you know, that was like disgusting to them. And that's how it should be. But uh, back then, that was like the worst thing you call somebody. But keep in mind, that, that uh, accusation came from a guy that was fired by King James. King James had been dead 20 years. Anthony Weldon uh, was still alive. And even when he brought out this accusation, people didn't believe him. But what happened is some people are like, you know, they, they, they I guess, find out about that accusation and they grab and they say, oh, he was homosexual. And, and again, we have to realize that you could say anything you want about a guy that's dead. And, and, but if you look at his writings, and there's a lot of his writings out there, there's, there's actually several books out there that document his life, that if you want that stuff, I could, I could gladly give that to you. And it, it, it talks about that he was, again, I don't believe he was inspired, but he was actually a very good man. And um, he, he wanted people to have the Bible in their own language, and that's very, very commendable. All right, let's pray together. Let's pray. So when somebody says something about King James, say, you know what, where are you getting your facts from? Don't get your facts from the Internet, amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this Bible study. Lord, thank you, Lord, for the, this uh, study also in King James, Lord. Thank you for the clarifications, Lord. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your word is inspired by you, not by men, Lord. So thank you, Lord, that you use men to uh, translate it. Thank you that you use uh, King James, Lord, to uh, lead the way, Lord. Thank you for those uh, 54 men that we learned about, Lord. Um, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that, <clears throat> Lord, uh, th th your word wasn't rushed, Lord. Lord, your word was already there. They wanted to give us a, per a perfect book, Lord. And, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that, Lord, uh, uh, we have that, your, your word in our hands, Lord, and we can read it and we can teach it, Lord. Help us, Lord, to uh, use this word, Lord, to... Uh, Continue to reach others, Lord. Lord, um, Lord, a great effort was put to uh, uh, to preserve your word, Lord. We just thank you, Lord, that for the men that that uh, that put the book together, Lord. We know you are the one that preserves it, Lord. We uh, thank you that uh, we got that, that we have um, have it on our hands and we can take it wherever we uh, we go and 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 use it to uh, to encourage others to uh, lead others to you, Lord. And Lord, thank you that this book was used to lead us each and each and every one. Every one of us to uh, to you, Lord, Lord. Uh, we thank you for a great place in heaven that we'll have one day, Lord. And we just uh, pray that you continue to use us, and uh, Lord, help us to reach as many as we can. In Jesus, my prayer.